1 Timothy chapter 3, if you are in one of the blue Bibles by the door, we're on page 992. I'll read the whole chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 3, page 992. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we humbly ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us afresh so that we might better understand your word and what it means for us today, even though it was written so long ago in our way of reckoning things. Help us, Lord, to be changed by your word. Help us to not come away from this with just a list of things to go do or try harder at, uh, but most of all, help us to see, even in this list of qualifications, and in the message that our church must proclaim, help us to see the goodness and the grace of Jesus and find there the true power for change. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Uh, our passage this morning is something kind of like a job description for church leaders, elders and deacons. That might seem like something that's not terribly thrilling or important, especially in a world that sees so little need for institutional religion. But look down there at verses 14 and 15, where Paul explains why he's writing this all out for us. He says to Timothy, I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I write these things to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We'll come back to those verses in a little bit, but you can see here already that Paul thinks that this job description 
and the letter as a whole, which is fairly nitty-gritty in terms of what churches should be doing and, and how they can be healthier, uh, you can see that Paul thinks that this is all very essential for the healthy functioning of the church. This is not something boring, not something unimportant. Paul says that the church is God's household. It's the place where God dwells in a very special way. The church exists to hold up like a pillar and to undergird God's truth. Listen to how the French reformer John Calvin describes how utterly important it is for a church to have healthy leaders. He's talking specifically about pastors, but it applies also to all the other leaders. Listen to what Calvin says. Calvin says, God does not himself come down from heaven to us, nor does he send angels every day to reveal his truth. But he uses pastors whom he has appointed for that purpose. To express it in a more homely manner, isn't the church the mother of all believers? Doesn't she renew them by the word of God, educate and nourish them through their whole life, strengthen and bring them at length to absolute perfection? And so you can see there that as dry as a list of qualifications for church leadership might seem at first, it's actually very essential for God's purposes in the world. This church, this specific congregation, and all churches must choose godly men who will teach and preserve the truth of God's message about Jesus to the word, to the world. And they must, with that, live lives that genuinely reflect how God's message about Jesus changes us, not only now, but especially into eternity. The elders of this church are currently accepting your nominations for men who you think meet these qualifications. And so it is incredibly important for you, if you're a member of this church, it's very important for you to know what kind of men you should be choosing as your leaders and what their character has to do with the message they're supposed to be proclaiming. We're going to see this morning the essential link between the leader's character and the church's message. Those are the two key words this morning, character and message. First, let's look at the kind of character that we and you should look for in church leaders. You see that in the first 13 verses. In verses 1 to 7, Paul is describing the qualifications for what he calls the overseer, which is another word for elder. As I mentioned last week, the primary function of the elder is to teach and to lead. Some elders spend all of their time doing this, people like me. We call these, in our denomination, we call them teaching elders, uh, or we call them ministers, or sometimes we call them pastors. But many elders spend some of their time doing these things, uh, and they spend most of their time on other callings in the world. We call these ruling elders. Sometimes we call them lay elders. These are the kinds of elders that we are taking your nominations for right now. Um, the reason that we distinguish between these two kinds of elders is because of a comment Paul makes in 1 Timothy 5 between elders who rule 
And then he says there's also elders who don't only rule, but they also labor in preaching and teaching. But whether they are professionals or not, they have the same exact role, the same exact authority, same exact qualifications. In verses 8 to 13, Paul describes a second role, the deacon, which is a role that is focused on practical service, especially with regards to mercy ministry toward the needy and also managing a church's property and money. We think there are basically two official roles for church leadership, two offices, we call them. But you can see here that there is a large overlap in what the qualifications are between them. There's a very large overlap in the kinds of, qual- of character they should have. Um, it's important, I've said this to you guys before, but it's really important to see that elders and deacons are not super Christians. They're not in some special caste. They haven't achieved some elite level of discipline and obedience that doesn't really apply to anybody else. These qualifications are also applied to all Christians, not only in 1 Timothy, but all over the New Testament. Um, It means that elders and deacons are not, again, they're not in some caste above us all, and we're all like, wow, they're up there doing something very holy. But what it means is that elders and deacons are supposed to be good examples of the normal Christian life, not something distinct or separate or special from the normal Christian life. I also want you to see here that these roles are desirable and rewarding and good. Paul says in verse 1 that if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Then he says in verse 13 that deacons who serve well gain a good standing for themselves and great confidence in the faith. It means that men should at some serious level want to serve and lead their churches in these ways. It's a noble task. You gain a good standing for yourself. Men should at least want to meet these character qualifications, even if for whatever reason they cannot take on the role. The work of leading and serving Christ's church is essential to God's purposes in the world. And so could I humbly challenge you men in particular to soberly consider why from your end of things why you should not be serving like this and whether it's a good and a godly reason what kinds of changes you might need to make in your life and your priorities to better meet these qualifications especially as it regards your character and your spiritual maturity But let's dig into the qualifications, which are pretty much the same for elders and deacons, and so I'm going to take them mostly together. Paul says in verse 2 that the elder must be above reproach. I think that's a general sweeping description of the whole entire thing about his character, uh, and by extension, about what all Christians' character should be like. It means that our lives and our behavior should be marked by a basic integrity, a basic cohesion and harmony between the good news that we say, that we believe about Jesus forgiving our sins and giving us the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out and what our lives actually look like. In other words, Christians, but especially Christian leaders, should not be hypocrites. 
You also see here that elders and deacons should be fairly mature in their faith. In verse 6, the elder should not be a recent convert because leadership in the church can easily lead an immature Christian to arrogance. In verse 10, Paul says that deacons should be tested, which I don't think is only referring to whether or not they can clearly understand and explain and apply Christian teaching, although that's part of it. Paul says they should be able to hold to the doctrine and the teaching of the church with a clear conscience. Uh, But I think it also means, and mainly means, that they have a proven track record of service to other people, especially the needy and the broken. You don't nominate men for these roles. You don't elect them for these roles because you hope that they maybe will figure it out later or you feel kind of bad for them and you want them to feel like people like them. Uh, You are looking for people who are already doing these things. Paul assumes here that churches will elect leaders whom they know fairly well, Uh, men that they have been able to watch. They've been able to see their lives and their habits and their character. Uh, They're looking for men who have not scattered and are not going to scatter when life as a church gets difficult or risky or inconvenient. You can also see in these verses a big focus on self-control from different angles. Paul says that elders and deacons must both be the husband of one wife, which again, like we talked about last week, is an indication that a church's ordained leaders should be male. I think it's a basic description of sexual fidelity and integrity. I don't think it says that if an elder has ever been divorced or if he's married to someone who's ever been divorced, he's totally banned forever from church leadership. It's a description of sexual integrity. Even if, like Paul, like Jesus, the leader is not actually married, a church leader needs to have his sexual desires well under control. Using pornography is now a common and tragic disqualifier for Christian leadership and ministry. It is an enormous stain on the name of Christ and on his bride. Many of you, if my past experience and the many things I read about studies about Christians are any indication, many of you are using pornography, especially men. And so I urge you, as your pastor, to take whatever steps you need to to stop no matter what it costs you. Please talk to me. Please come talk to one of the elders. We want to help you. You really don't have to be enslaved to it. God promises you, as a Christian, the power of his Holy Spirit to overcome sin. That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it all goes away, even in your whole entire life. But even so, he does promise to change you. He promises you power over sin. But at the same time, relying on the power of the Holy Spirit might entail dramatic steps like getting rid of your phone. It's worth it if that's what it takes. But church leaders, like all Christians, also need to be marked by self-control in all kinds of other areas in their lives. They are to be level-headed, Paul says, and self-controlled. Paul uses the same word for modesty for elders as he used last week in the passage talking about women. And he says they need to be modest. They are supposed to have a healthy relationship, he says, with alcohol and by extension with other substances. It's not just saying, well, just as long as you don't totally get smashed, uh, that's okay. Uh, But what it means beyond that is you don't depend on this. Uh, You don't need it to make it through the stress and the challenges and the disappointments of life. 
these men are also supposed to have a great deal of self-control in regards to their wealth and their possessions. Paul says they shouldn't be fixated on money, whether they have it or not. They shouldn't be building their lives around their work and their stuff and their experiences. Instead, they should be marked by generosity, by self-sacrifice, a willingness to not achieve worldly success and security if that's what it means to serve their families and their church and their community. So that's self-control. They're supposed to be mature. They're supposed to be marked by self-control. You can also see here a lot of them touch on their relationship to other people. Church leaders are supposed to be gentle, not bullies, not violent, not seeking to control other people or their circumstances through making threats, through guilt trips. They're supposed to be marked by a great deal of kindness and joyfulness, not grumpy, not testy, not a know-it-all, not irritable. The qualifications about gentleness seem to show up a little more often when Paul's talking about elders. Uh, maybe it has something to do with the elders, by nature of their role, being more directly involved with conflict and with church discipline. Even then, they need to be gentle. Elders especially, he says, should be hospitable. Another one that seems to show up more for elders than for deacons. Uh, that means they should be willing to share their home and their table and their stuff with other people rather than closing themselves and their families off from the world. Paul says that leaders should be well thought of by outsiders, which means that their non-Christian colleagues and friends and neighbors should know them at some significant level. Uh, Paul just assumes, well, of course, uh, people outside the church are going to know them. They're going to know Christians. Uh, we're not, they're not supposed to be sheltering themselves or their families in a kind of bunker hiding from the world. Now, this doesn't mean when Paul says they should be well thought of by outsiders, it doesn't mean that non-Christians should like everything about Christian leaders. Paul himself, writing his second letter to Timothy uh, a few years later, 2 Timothy 3.12, writing this from prison of all places, he says that everybody who desires to live for God will be persecuted. Persecution is a normal and expected part of what it means to follow Jesus. And church leaders are often the most prominent targets for it. So it doesn't mean that uh, non-Christians have to like everything about you, and if they don't like everything about you, then therefore something must be wrong. But it does mean that generally speaking, under most circumstances, they should have a basic respect and admiration for you. They should see that your walk matches your talk. They shouldn't choke on their coffee if they're sipping it and they hear, oh yeah, so-and-so is going to be a leader in his church. I say, oh really? even if they don't like everything that we believe, even if they don't like everything we do. Paul says that both elders and deacons should lead their families in a godly and a Christ-like way. Uh, if their wives and their children are constantly defying and manipulating them at home, Paul says, what else are you going to expect in the much more serious and eternally significant work of leading the family of the church? I do think there's a real danger an all-too-common danger of dads being bullies toward their families, being rigid, authoritarian, controlling. But in my experience, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, in my experience, the more common danger in our world seems to be dads who passively let their kids be in charge and enable their misbehavior out of a fear of upsetting them 
or their wives. That doesn't mean that a leader's kids need to have a spotless track record. When we first moved here five years ago, somebody behind us sitting in church said it's always nice when the pastor's kids are the craziest ones. <laughs> it doesn't mean spotless track record, but it means that we can't, we can't ultimately control our kids, especially their hearts. And so the real question is not whether a leader or his kids sin, because everybody will, but rather how does he respond when they do? Does he discipline his children in an age-appropriate way, in a gentle but serious way? Does he point them to the mercy of Jesus and encourage them to be transformed by it? You can see here in verse 11 that the deacon's wives appear briefly. Again, we're still talking about how they relate to other people. Uh, it's not entirely clear who this is referring to because the word can mean either wives or just women. Um, and so it might be describing some kind of assistant to the deacon's type role. But I think because of how Paul shifts right back into talking about deacons again and their families, I think it probably is describing their wives uh, maybe because they're likely to be involved in their husband's ministry of practical service to other people. But whoever it's describing, Paul says that they too must have the same kind of character that we've been talking about. They need to be marked by self-control, gentleness, and love toward other people. So that's the character that Paul expects churches to see and to find in their elders and deacons because they're supposed to be good examples of the normal Christian life. These are all things that apply to all of us, all the time. The qualifications are almost entirely concerned with character, not with charisma, not with, like I joked earlier, intelligence, not with business experience, uh, not with how long they've been a member of the church and maybe they just kind of deserve it because they've been around for a long time. These lists have almost nothing to do with skill. It's almost entirely concerned with character, almost nothing to do with skill, with one exception. At the end of verse 2, Paul says that the elders must be able to teach. And that's where we shift now from the character of the leader to the message of the church. When Paul says that the elders need to be able to teach, he's not just talking about being a dynamic speaker. Uh, the Apostle Paul was criticized and undermined because he was strange-looking, he was small, he was a weak speaker in many ways. Uh, it's not just talking about having lots of Bible and theology knowledge. Uh, and it doesn't mean that elders just need to be really motivating, really encouraging, even really comforting. Paul's letter to Titus, a similar kind of letter as the one we're looking at, Paul's letter to Titus, says that this skill of teaching is important for elders, not only because they need to be able to instruct people, but also, he says there, because they need to be able to rebuke people. They need to be able to correct them. People who teach and believe and live wrongly. And so this means that elders should not be people pleasers. They should not be conflict avoiders. They need to be able to teach Christians not only the encouraging stuff, that's really important. Lots of churches become really grouchy and grumpy and guilt-trippy. They need to be encouraging, but they also need to be able to teach the hard stuff too. This is the one skill, the ability to teach, that shows up in these lists because the church's mission revolves around teaching and proclamation. 
Paul does not say that elders and pastors should be able to put on a good show. He doesn't say they should be able to cultivate a certain kind of uh, aesthetic or spiritual experience. He doesn't say they should be able to make people feel good. He doesn't say they should be able to foster a pleasant social club or political action committee. Paul says they should be able to teach. Do they faithfully communicate what the Bible says and means for today? I have heard a lot of sermons by people who went to a lot of school studying the Bible. I've heard a lot of sermons that do not really teach what the Bible says. They take something the Bible says and they use it to talk about something else that might be true and might be biblical. I've heard a lot of sermons that are not really about the Bible, but they're about cool illustrations, cool articles that the person's read, uh, funny or interesting stories and applications and practical tips for life. The real question, that's, I mean, it's important to illustrate what the Bible says. It's important to apply what the Bible says. But the real question for you, as you choose elders, and as you choose your next pastor, if and when I die in a skydiving accident or something, the real question for you, ultimately, on skill, is can they teach what the Bible says? Do they make it applicable for today? Not just riding their hobby horses, not just saying what people want to hear. What does God's Word actually say? Why? Why is this so important? Look at verses 14 to 16, where we continue this focus on the message. Paul says, The reason that it is so important to select godly and qualified leaders for the church, leaders who are going to help train people to live for God in all the ways we've been talking about, is because of what the church is. He says, this is the church of the living God. He says, it's the household of God. It's not just a building. It's not just a group of people who get together every week because of some common cultural or social interests. Paul says, this is the place where God is present in a very special way. How we live in and through the church is profoundly significant because he says the living God is among you. The one who lives from himself, the one who gives life and existence to all things outside of himself at all times, the one who cannot tolerate any kind of death or sin in his presence. He is the living God. Being with the living God means being alive in him and through him, it means being changed more and more so that our lives are marked less and less by death and decay and more by life and health. That's what all those weird things and buildings and sacrifices in the Old Testament were always pointing to. God is alive. We are dead. We need his life. This is particularly true as we look forward to the final renewal and resurrection at the end of history. Paul says that the church, the house of the living God, he says it's the pillar, it's the foundation, the mainstay of the truth, of the good news about how God has made a way for us to come back into his life-giving and life-sustaining presence. Remember, that's why when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, God says, you're going to die. They don't physically drop dead when he says that. They spiritually die, and he immediately sends them out of his presence. No death in God's presence. 
But God, through Jesus, has made a way for us to come back into his life-giving, life-sustaining presence, even though we, like the Apostle Paul said in chapter 1, are undeserving sinners. Verse 16, you see Paul summarizing the truth that the church has to uphold, that its leaders need to teach and to defend, written in what was probably some kind of hymn or creed that the church would have known. Paul says in verse 16, he says, the mystery of godliness is great. And then he quotes this creed or this hymn. He was manifested in the flesh. It means that the living God has come into human history as the man Jesus Christ. Paul says he was vindicated by the Spirit. God's mighty Spirit demonstrated that he was who he said he was, not only through his miracles, but especially through his victory over death in the resurrection. His demonstrating that he too is the living God. Paul says he was seen by angels, God's spiritual servants, incredibly powerful. If any one of them showed up in this room right now, we would all fall down in terror. And Paul says that they are marveling at the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus rules over the cosmic realm of all spiritual forces. He was proclaimed among the nations. He came into the world to defeat sin and death, to rescue and to heal all the nations. And now his church and its leaders and its people are announcing this all through history, all over the planet. He was believed on in the world. The church is not only announcing who Jesus is, or not only talking about what he's done, but it's growing. He's being believed on in the world. Things don't look uh, too positive, in my opinion, in America or in the West, but sometimes you need to take a wider view on things and see what God's doing all over the world. God is using the gospel to transform lives everywhere. He's being believed on. Finally, Paul says he was taken up in glory. After his resurrection, Jesus ascends into heaven where he now rules over his church, where he now guarantees the church's security and health and safety and happiness. Jesus is the glorious king of all of God's creation. That in poetic form is the message of the church. It's the truth that the church and its leaders and its members have to cling to. They have to protect it. They have to proclaim it. The living God has come to us in Jesus and he offers his gracious forgiveness to anybody who's humble enough to accept it all over the world. This message of who God is and what he's done for us should change us. The message changes us. It fosters godliness. This is why Paul says the mystery of godliness is great. And then he goes into talking about what we believe. The message changes us. This word godliness, you could maybe translate it as piety, uh, but that would mostly mislead us because we tend to think of piety or being pious as something kind of private. I do these kind of set of little things. I read my Bible in the morning. Um, That's not quite what it means. It means having a Godward focus in your entire life. It affects everything about what we do. It affects everything about how we treat other people. Paul says that the mystery of godliness is great. This supernatural reality of the gospel, it used to be hidden, but now it's revealed. That's why he calls it a mystery. Uh, It's been revealed in Jesus. He says that mystery of who Jesus is and what he's done, that's the sphere where godliness grows. That's the fuel behind our transformation. It's how you change. As you prayerfully believe and apply these truths about God coming into the world and ruling over the world, you see more and more of this transformed character, this transformed life that the church's leaders 
are supposed to model for us. The living God is here with us in mercy and grace and glory. He's ruling over all things through the resurrected Jesus. And so I urge you as your pastor, I urge you to choose for yourselves godly leaders whose lives already reflect this. Not perfectly, but truly. Choose them so that they will help you and your family and this church and this city hear this truth and be transformed by it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gracious presence among us, sustaining us through all things. You are the living, glorious God. In you we live and move and have all of our being. Thank you for your gracious condescension to us in the Lord Jesus, coming to be with us, to walk among us, to rescue us from sin and from death. Help us to live lives of gratitude and joy, especially as we consider whom you might be calling to lead us. Help us, Lord, transform all of us from the inside out so that we might show your goodness to the world with lives of joy and godliness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.